What's good, party people? Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. As, as my pastor from back in Memphis would say, beloved, happy Easter. Hey, man, so excited you guys can be with us as Pastor Corey with the Movement Church Homestead and so glad that you are hanging out, tuning in with us this beautiful, amazing Easter Sunday 2020. Hey, if you got friends you want to invite, listen, they can go straight to our website, moveccc.org. Click on live stream and live stream and it is up right now and you can join in. You can invite them to join in with us as we get started and we get to talk about an age old story. We get to see with fresh eyes and fresh ears hearing the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. So I'm excited. Listen, I'm going to jump right in. So would y'all pray with me? Come on, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your grace, your loving kindness and your tender mercy. This is an amazing time. I know we're not in a normal situation that we will be sitting in chairs and pews and things all over the country celebrating. This is like the Christian Super Bowl to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. You are amazing, Jesus. So we thank you for this time. But Father, we know there's no distance in the spirit. And we thank you for technology and this opportunity we have to even live stream this message and for people all over the country and the world to be able to tune in and hear about the amazing story of the gospel. Father God, I pray all of you, none of me, hide me behind your cross. Give all that are listening ears to hear. That no matter who they are, that they will not, they will walk away from this message differently than when they came. Thank you for YouTube. Thank you for the Internet. Thank you for all the luxuries we have to have this opportunity. I can only imagine what Paul would have been able to do to have all of this technology at his disposal. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this message. I pray for all of my non-believers that may be listening to this, Father God, that you may penetrate their hearts, Father God, for all my believers, that they will be encouraged and, 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 and lifted up as a result of being reminded of this great story. Father, thank you for this time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we get to, to look, into, look into this story, I believe the greatest story ever told, which is the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ. And we get to continue talking about the truth that Jesus is king. It's a beautiful thing. So we have been walking for weeks and talking for weeks and hearing about Jesus's authority and his supremacy, his authority over sickness and disease, his authority over nature and disaster. He have an authority over everything. And what it is, it's making a and he is making a personal proclamation that he is the king of the world. He is the king of the world. But it's this very proclamation. It's him saying out of his own mouth, him being king, that brings all the issues. I mean, in a variety of different ways, directly and indirectly, Jesus makes transcendent, he makes messianic, and he makes divine claims about himself. He claims to be the son of God. For example, we can go back into John uh, chapter 10, verse 30, and it says this, I and my father are one. He's saying me and the father one. The Greek word there for one is not masculine, but it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying 
I and the Father are the same person. He is saying, I and the Father, are, our nature are, is the same. It, we are one in essence, that we are alike in essence. And how do people respond to this truth? They respond in a way, his audience, they're listening to him, and how they respond is they begin to pick up stones, and they're ready to kill him. They're ready to take his life because of what they're saying. They're saying, listen, you're saying you're God. And you're just a mere man. How can you make such a claim? And Jesus is responding to them. He's responding in a way. He says, hey, how could you make that claim? And he says, hey, me and my father, we are one. But here's the thing. He can make that claim because not only did he die, but in three days, he got up from the grave. I mean, if you could make that claim, die, and then get up, I believe that's reason to be believe you. And here's the beauty of who Jesus is. He is putting himself at the disposal of other people. Listen to this. How do I know that? Well, he's connecting it through his own words. From the beginning of time, he lays out his purpose. When we started this, we started in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But he goes on, Matthew 20, verse 28 says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then it goes on, Matthew chapter 26, verse 28 says, blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. From the very beginning, Jesus is putting himself at the, at the disposal of others. I know we have this conversation and I've talked about it in several weeks, this conversation about the greatest of all time. In boxing, you, in, in professional boxing, you can have an undefeated uh, boxer, but he may not be considered the undisputed champ. He may be undefeated. He may even hold a belt, but he may not be seen as undisputed. In boxing, the way you become the undisputed champ, you have to hold belts in the WBA, WBA WBC, IBF, and WBO. If you hold all of those belts at the same time, you're not only possibly undefeated, but you're undisputed champ. Well, let me tell you, Jesus is undefeated and he's the undisputed king of the world. Last week, we were, we were looking at the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we're looking at the proof for his kingship. And we talk through reasons why that he should be considered king. But now that crisis in the city, things are starting to heat up. They're getting kind of ugly a little bit. As we head into Matthew's passion narrative, the long running confrontation between Jesus and all the Jerusalem authorities is becoming to an inevitable outcome. That they move from just words to now deeds. They're not just saying things, but now they're looking to act on these things. They're looking to actually do something about what has been said. Why? Because Jesus is making these outlandish claims in their mind 
of being king. And because he claimed to be king, he was found guilty. He stood before a court. They found him guilty. As a result of him being found guilty, he was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on because of what? He claimed to be king. So in essence, because of his claim, they murdered him. They killed him. Right. They not only hung him on a cross. Made him carry that cross, beat him, flogged him, broke him down. And as he is breathing his last breath, maybe possibly already dead, they take a spear and stab him in the side. They wanted to be certain that Jesus was dead. And above his head, it is believed that there was a sign that read, King of the Jews. Today we have the privilege to either be refreshed, be reminded, or to be informed about this amazing story, the most life-changing story ever told. But all of this is not just a chronicle of events. As Matthew will give the reader repeated opportunities to reflect on the significance of what's happened. Matthew has given us opportunity to really grasp, take in, and understand what is taking place in the life of Jesus and how what has happened is hugely significant for us today. The gospel narrative, the gospel story is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. And if there's no resurrection, everything that Jesus has said is a lie. We don't have to remember any of it. We don't have to take any of that to heart. By raising from the dead, Jesus Christ provided the truth, the evidence that he is the undefeated and undisputed king of the world. For us as Christians, we have the most beautiful story that has ever been told. It's rooted in truth and relevance, right? It's not only relevant, it's true. It's legit. And here's the thing. It fits. Our story may fit into God's story in a minor way, but it's not what people need to hear. They don't need our story. They need the story of the gospel. This is what people need, the story of the gospel. And let me tell you, this story is well attested. I know there are people, there may even be people listening to me right now that say, man, that's some bull. Don't nobody believe that. Really? This dude died and got up? Nobody really, possibly, you don't believe that. But I want to give you some evidence. I want to lay out for you. Evidence of why we would say Jesus not only was killed, right, but he got up from the grave. The first one, check this out. Execution. Jesus was dead. I'm going to give you four. Jesus was dead. It is a proven fact. And not just a proven fact through what we're saying here in the word, but no scholar, amongst all scholars, both Christian and non-Christian scholars, they all would attest to the truth that Jesus actually died on the cross 
in Judea. That no one disputes that truth that he actually died. And here's the thing. When you study ancient history, right? Studying it, you are lucky to find one, maybe two sources that support facts. Yet, for, for this idea or for this truth that Jesus died, we not only have multiple early first century accounts in record in the New Testament, but we even get accounts, sources outside of the Bible. We get Josephus. He's a first century Jewish historian. He worked for the Romans. We, we get Cadius, another early century um, historian. Lucian, we even get Jewish townsmen that all attest to the fact that Jesus was killed. So let me help you with that truth. He died. He actually did die. Even if we wanted to kind of conjure up some stories like, well, he actually just fainted on the cross, so he wasn't actually dead. But let me help you. He was flogged. He was beaten in inches of his life. And when they say flogged, they took this whip that was that had glass and rocks and and all different articles in it. When they would hit you with this, it would snatch your skin off. So he not only has open wounds and he is bleeding, but he is exhausted. He's been up all night through trials that he couldn't even carry the portion of the cross to Golgotha. So he is he is struggling. But not only that, he's been nailed in his wrists to the cross, in his feet. He's hanging there, can't breathe, and they ended by stabbing him in the side, puncturing his heart. He's bleeding, comes out, blood and water. Imagine, even if you fainted, you're taken off, you're wrapped in burial clothes, put in a tomb, big rock rolled in, in the place. You're bleeding. How do you get out of that place? Just say if he's lucky enough to roll back this giant stone. How do he get out of the place without leaving some type of trail of blood? How does he get out of that place? Jesus was dead. Number two, early. And when I use the term early, we're talking about early reports of his resurrection that are so early that you can't write them off as legend, right? It takes time for a legend to actually get started. They were way too early. When I say early, we're talking within one to three years of what happened. There were eyewitnesses, early eyewitnesses that claimed to have been there doing the death of Christ. The books of the gospel, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even Acts were circulating during the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries. And because they were circulating during that lifetime, if it wasn't true, they would have looked for opportunities to to say that isn't true. They would have been happy to find errors in what was happening. But they didn't. Why? Because they knew that this had actually happened. Number three, empty. And when I say empty, I mean an empty tomb. It was sealed. It was guarded. It wasn't just you put like a nice little curtain up. They rolled a stone that took effort to put in front of there. And not just effort for one man, but effort for multiple men to move in front of it. But by Easter morning, there was nothing there. 
Even the enemies of Jesus admitted it was empty. And how do we know it? Because it tells us here in the Bible that they admitted, admitted that it was empty. Look down at um, verse, look at Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to look at verse 62. No, look at verse 64, it says this, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Let his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. So they were already preparing themselves for the, for the possibility of the disciples coming to steal Jesus' body and then say he had risen. Verse 66, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Look at chapter 28, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. He, he, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And this is what he says. He is not here, for he has risen. See, the thing was, he was gone that morning. True, we don't know at what point he got out of there. But what we do know is on that morning, he was gone. And then lastly, oh, well, let me, let me finish with empty. How do we know? Because when the disciples came, they began to proclaim that Jesus had risen, right? They wanted this opportunity to, to, to be able to say he has risen without lying, right? And the way they could have fixed that is they could have just said, hey, go look in the tomb, his body is still there. That's never what they said. And actually what they were told was, listen, tell the people that the body was stolen. They even paid the soldiers money so that they wouldn't actually go tell what truly had happened. So they wouldn't know actually what happened. Look at verse 11, chapter 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this, if, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In essence, they were paid to lie. Both parties agreed that the tomb was empty. Both those that put him there and those that was hoping to see him resurrect both agreed it was empty. The question is this, how did the tomb become empty? Lastly, number four, eyewitnesses. Over a period of time, Jesus appeared alive in dozens of different situations to more than 515 people. Listen, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let it be established. Eyewitness is the most important thing in any case. You can, you can have all kind of evidence, right? But there is, except for forensic evidence, 
There's no better evidence than an eyewitness, someone who actually saw what was going on. Now, I agree with you. I hear what you're saying. Eyewitnesses get things wrong all the time. But how do you get 515 people saying the exact same thing? I don't care what case you're in. If you get 515 people to corroborate and say the exact same story, you ain't getting out of that one. You're guilty. 515 people. We're talking men, women, groups of people, skeptics. We're talking about everybody. People talked about him. People ate with him. People sat with him. They all had an opportunity to see Jesus actually walking around. It was a a beautiful thing. Jesus got up from the grave. And he's making appearances. Two significant appearances after his resurrection. Look at verse 9. That first significant one. Chapter 28. Verse 9, big number 28, small number 9, it says this, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Who we're talking about is the two Marys. They came up and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. One significance about this is it was two women. Women were not even allowed to be witnesses in any kind of court cases. And unfortunately, they were considered insignificant in this society. And as a result of that, it seems very significant that they would actually put women right here. Not after the disciples. As a matter of fact, they are using women as the first ones to see Jesus. They're first on the scene, first to, the, to, to actually have an encounter with the risen Jesus. Then we look at verse 17, and it says this, and when they saw him, well, start at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now we get the women, they worship him no doubt. But when we get to, to the men, we got some, those that had walked with him were actually doubting. It seems clear that what Matthew wants to say is that the proper response to the risen Christ is worship. It's not doubt that the proper response is worship. Matthew has, in, has opened a window unto the glory of the risen Christ. And he means for it to be a window of worship. That the proper response that we should have to a risen Savior is worship. He deserves the worship. I mean, if any of us was to see someone get up from the dead, it would be complete awe. But there's even a different type of awe when the person that gets up from the dead told you He was not only going to die, but that he was going to get up. The proper response for us this morning, the proper response for us every morning from this point forward should be worship of a risen Savior. That we shouldn't have to wait until Easter 2021, but that every day 
knowing that this risen Savior got up, our response should be worship. We can choose to respond in worship or we can respond in doubt. If right now you're responding in doubt, I want to help you. The resurrected, resurrected Christ should, should it, he should be certified. And this is what I mean by certified. Once and for all, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, should be seen and known as the king of the world, if nothing more than the proof that he got up from the grave. This is what Jesus says. He says, you should worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. And when he raises from the dead, men and women bow at his feet and they worship him. And he receives it without rebuke. That he welcomes this worship. Why? Because he deserves this worship. Easter is a great day for reaffirming our conviction that Jesus Christ is no mere man. He's no mere angel. He's no mere creature. But from everlasting to everlasting, he is God through whom and for whom all things exist. This is a great day to reflect, to reaffirm to be reminded of God's goodness and his grace. So let me help you. Here's some implications of us understanding. Here's some implications of us grasping and, and accepting the truth of who Christ is. Christianity, it stands and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Matthew writes here in chapter 28, right, through all of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that he used to write this passage, he makes, a, he makes claims that change the whole world. He is affirming these claims. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we don't have to do anything. There's no need for us to respond. But if he truly did, if he truly got up from the grave, here are three implications that should affect our lives and how we should respond. Number one is Jesus has all authority over life and death. We've talked about him having authority over sickness and disease. We've talked about him having authority over nature and disaster. Here's the implication of him getting up from the grave, that Jesus has authority over life and death. Listen to this. Shortly before his death, Jesus told his disciples, he says this, he says, no one takes it. He means his life from me. But I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. John chapter 10, verse 18. Listen, that's an astonishing statement. Who amongst men, who amongst individuals, who do you know that can determine when they live and when they die? None of us. No man knows the time or the hour. We don't know when our time is up. We're talking about a man that controls this himself. None of us decides when we come into the world. None of us decides when we leave the world. So even when parents say to you, I brought you in this world, I can take you out. That ain't true. It's cool. It's a nice little statement. I like it. You can say it. But let me tell you, that's not really true. Actually, Jesus determined. He's the one that brought us into this world. He's the one that can take us out. And Jesus says, listen, I'm coming back to life. 
I'm not going to stay dead. I'm coming back to life. And that's precisely what Jesus did. He came back to life. He rose from the dead. He has absolute authority over life and death. But here's the thing. If Jesus rose from the dead and he has absolute authority over life and death, we also have to admit this. Jesus has authority over sin and Satan. He's got authority over life and death. He has authority over sin and Satan. Listen to this. All men die because they sin. From death, for death is the payment for our sins. Romans 6.23 tells us this. However, Jesus is one man in all of history who died without sinning. He stands alone in that truth. He died without any sin to speak of. So why did he die? Let me tell you. Jesus died for our sins where? In our place. He died for our sins in our place. Not for his sins, not in his place, for our sins in our place. You can find that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. After his death, Jesus rose from the grave, not only in victory over death, but also in victory over sin. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 55 through 57. This is what it tells us about the sting of death. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on. We got victory. We have victory. Why? Because he not only has authority over life and death, he has authority over sin and Satan. See, sometimes it's easy for us to think Jesus' authority is, a, is kind of an abstract sense without actually making a personal application, making an application personal to yourself. But here's the thing. The fact that Jesus has authority over life and death as well as authority over sin and Satan leads us to an unavoidable conclusion. And let me help you with that unavoidable conclusion. Number three. Jesus has authority over you and me. Let me help you one more time. Jesus has authority over you and me. Not just life and death, not just sin and Satan, but he actually has authority over you and me. He is our rightful Lord and Master. Paul speaks about this reality in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. This is what he says. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, what does that mean? 
for Jesus to have absolute authority over you and me. Let me help you. First, that means he reigns over us supremely. Number two, he loves us deeply. And number three, he will judge us eternally. One more time. One, he reigns over us supremely. Two, he loves us deeply. And three, he will judge us eternally. Right? Jesus speaks of his role as a judge. Listen to this. John chapter 5, 21 through 23 says this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So you can't honor one and not the other. Honoring the Son is honoring the Father. For all who believe in Christ, the truth of Christ, Christ's judgment, that's good news for you. If you believe in Christ, Christ's judgment is good news for you. Let me tell you why it's good news. It's good news for you because you can be saved from eternal judgment if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's good news for all of you listening, all of my skeptics, everyone that has heard me lay out facts and truth for why we know that Jesus raised from the dead. Listen, this is an opportunity for you. This is a this is a chance for you. Christ's role as judge is also good news because of this, that this world is not all there is. What you see around you, this is not all there is. If our only uh, expectation are for this life, then there's no hope for us in the afterlife. There's no hope for us in the world to come. Listen, Christ's judgment means our efforts for justice in the world become meaningful. Here's my point. You know what? I can... I can let my friend Tim Keller explain it better. Pastor and author Tim Keller, he says this. He says, each year at Easter, I get to preach on the resurrection. In my sermon, I always say to my skeptical, secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor. Uh, they, they care about the hunger and disease and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing will nothing we do will make any difference? However, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope 
and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. This is an excerpt from his book, The Reason for God. Listen, all that we're doing, all that we may care for our environment or care for the world or serve the poor, all of that is in vain if Jesus didn't actually resurrect from the dead. Because in his resurrection, there is hope. There is life. So what we come to, our conclusion is, we have to ask ourselves a very personable question. And here's the question. Do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the reason I put historical, because it is history. This is the point where the message of Christianity is radically different from every other religion. And let me tell you why it's radically different from every other religion. Scripture, it doesn't give a list of things you have to do or boxes you have to check off or rituals you have to follow. There's only a truth that needs to be believed. And I'm not asking you to do a, the Bible doesn't ask us to do a whole lot of stuff. It asks us to believe a truth. Christianity, it's, it's a religion that can be investigated, that it can be studied, it can be looked into, so to speak. If you don't believe the gospel, hey, the burden of proof is on you to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. The burden of proof is on you to prove that Christianity isn't what it says it is. Yet there is more involved in salvation than just believing in the resurrection. It's not enough that you just believe. Let me give you a case in point. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen to that. For all those that received him, those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. You have the right to become God's child. Believing the evidence, believing all of the stuff that I laid out in history, believing that Jesus is the son of God. Listen, that's not enough. Just believing that it's happened isn't enough. A lot of people believe that it happened. But it has to be believing and receiving. You have to believe it and receive the free gift of God's grace that God has provided through the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have to submit to his way. Listen, if I come up to you and I, I, I put my gun in front of you, most of us understand that with this, there is a request. Even if that, that gunman doesn't even open their mouth, there's a request. Because what he is tossing around in his hand is, is a instrument of authority. And why is it an instrument of authority? Because immediately you know this person has the upper hand. And so even if they don't request it, you are immediately moving into a place of surrender. This is what that means, right? If he says, stick them up, 
Get your hands up. You are immediately surrendering. It's not enough to believe that he can shoot you. You have to respond in a way that says, I believe it. So it's not enough to believe it. There is some action, some corresponding action that has to come with your belief. And when you believe it, boom, you act like you believe it. You surrender. But listen, that surrendering has to come with some obedience. And let me tell you how it comes with the obedience. Because when you hear, the next response is, now I need you to do whatever I want you to do. That means if I want your phone, your watch, your jewelry, I'm now asking you to act on your surrender with obedience. And how do you act on that surrender with obedience? You start giving up what he's requested from you. Let me help you. Jesus' request of you after surrender is obedience, and he's saying, give me you. The question is not just, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But will you repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord? It's not enough to believe. Listen, in our day, people people urge you. They want you to concede intellectually to Jesus. They want you to pray a certain prayer, get involved in a particular church, live a relatively good life, and all with the promise, either explicitly or inexplicitly, that you will be saved. All of those things bring salvation. Let me help you today, this Resurrection Sunday. That's a lie. That's, that's, that's not all the truth. Because we're not just talking about head knowledge. We're talking about a surrender of your heart. We're talking about obedience. Score bunches of people. They profess Christianity They believe half of what Romans 10 and 9 says. And then they think they are saved from their sins when in fact they aren't. And let me tell you why they aren't. Why? Because they're giving lip service to Jesus. But their lives, all of who they are, are not surrendered to Jesus. He doesn't have absolute authority. That's why we have to ask ourselves, Where you're sitting right now in your seat, wherever you may be, I need you to ask yourself this question. Do you surrender to the universal authority of Jesus Christ? Worldwide authority of Jesus Christ. Do you surrender? And when you do surrender, do you respond in obedience? This is what I mean. To confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9. To confess with your mouth is not about saying some magical words. Rather, it's about a heart condition that says, listen to me. Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, I believe he rose from the grave as my Savior. And my life belongs to him as Lord. 
And Lord simply means boss. You are in charge, God. And let me tell you now, eternity depends on your answer to that question. Do you, will you surrender to the universal authority of Jesus Christ? You can do that today, right where you sit, right where you are. If you're with a Christian friend, they can help walk you through this. But we're not just talking about lip service, words coming out of your mouth. But we're talking about surrender. And in that surrender, there has to be an act of obedience. The first act of obedience is repentance. You say, God, forgive me because I've sinned against you. I've made poor, bad choices. I not only need your forgiveness, I need your grace. But you come and live in my heart change my life. I not only want to surrender, but I want to live an obedient life unto you. And I believe if you speak those words sincerely from your heart, God will begin to work. I don't want anybody to be fooled, to believe they're on the right path, they're good with God, and they're not really good. If you've got any questions, I would love for you to reach out to me. You can hit me up at pastor at move ccc.org or to my personal email, Corey at wemovecc.org. Love to talk to you. Love to have that conversation. Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word and thank you for the true, factual evidence that Jesus not only died, but Jesus got up from the grave. That he has all authority over life and death. That he has all authority over sin and Satan. But he also has all authority over you and me. So I'm praying for a genuine, heartfelt response to that truth. That not only will they be surrender, Father, but there will be obedience. That even now, people are praying prayers of repentance that they are confessing with their mouth that Jesus truly is Lord of their life and that they believe with all their heart that he got up from the grave. That salvation is found not in the words, but when in a heart response that says, you truly are Lord, I want to live wholeheartedly for you. I pray that that's happening right now. And you're moving mightily all through the internet waves and blessing hearts and minds of those that need to know who you are. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to end with this. Hey, maybe you, you're not quite there. And let me tell you, it's okay. What I would encourage you to do is study for yourself. I would encourage you to investigate for yourself and find out if what I'm really saying is true. God bless you. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Peace.